0: Episode fifty-eight, twentieth of October, two thousand and twelve. Astronauts Joe Engel and Ron Garan. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit amateur astronomy podcast produced by me, Guru Bia Singh, an amateur astronomer based in the UK. For more information, see the About and FAQ pages at www.astrotalkuk.org Astronauts Joe Engel and Ron Garan The first of the two interviews in this episode is with astronaut Joe Engel and it was recorded during his visit to the UK in 2008. Joe was at the front of the queue to go to the moon when NASA cut its Apollo program. His place was taken by the geologist Harrison Schmidt on Apollo 17, which was the last manned mission to the Moon in 1972. In this interview, Joe talks about his work before and after Apollo on the X-15 and the space shuttle programs. Did you always want to be a test pilot? Uh, I always wanted to be
1: a pilot. Um, <laughs> I can't remember ever wanting to do anything but fly airplanes, and uh, as my education progressed, and I saw the uh, the advantages of getting an education to become a test pilot, the 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 type of flying that was available to test pilots was just more more uh, more appealing. Uh, but no, I, I didn't have uh, any desire to be an astronaut. In fact. Uh, uh, I was at Edwards Air Force Base when uh, our space programs got uh, started with Mercury program and the Gemini programs and at that time I was flying the X-15 and quite honestly I didn't have any desire to uh, to go fly in a capsule. I, wanted to. I figured I could go into space in an airplane and fly it out and
0: fly it back and that just really appealed to me. I've talked to you about uh, X-15 in a moment. Do you recall your very first solo? Uh,
1: yes I do. Uh, it was in a Cessna, Cessna 120, and uh, I was working uh, summers at uh, Cessna Aircraft Company, as a matter of fact, All right. <laughs> uh, saving money to go back to school in the fall. Um, and I had a wonderful supervisor uh, there at Cessna who was an instructor. Uh, he... He provided me with the formal instruction, the uh, mm-hmm. uh, pilot instruction, mm-hmm. and uh, even arranged for me to have an evening job at the local Grass Strip Airport so that I could uh, work eight hours and get one hour flying time, and uh, he would instruct me on that flying. So I, I uh, one summer I soloed and started flying. Uh,
0: right. So how many hours have you done before the first solo? Oh, I think uh, seven or eight hours or something like that. Wow. <laughs> um, the X-15, it's an incredible machine. You must have probably done quite a few hours on the X-15. Not so many hours,
1: really. You mean flying the X-15? Mm-hmm. No, not, not really so many hours. I had I had 16 uh, flights, successful flights on the X-15, but the flights were a very short duration, they were about 10 to 12 minutes each, so it just didn't build up flying time very rapidly. However, there were a number of times where we would uh, go out to launch and find that there was some anomaly... Uh, prior to launch and have to uh, jettison fuel and uh, just carry the airplane back, right back underneath the wing of the B-52. And those were, those missions
0: were about two hours long. Well, the X-15 uh, 15 was something you launched from the bottom of the B-52. Um, very high speeds, incredible G-forces, and all of this was to inform the rockets that were uh, to come in the future. What came out of the X-15 that was used in the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo and indeed the Space Shuttle? Well, the
1: X-15 wasn't necessarily designed uh, to help develop the rockets of the future. Uh, The X-15 really was designed to help understand the uh, heating and the controllability and shockwave at high speed high uh, hypersonic flight and also then to uh, probe and determine how to fly outside the atmosphere, mm-hmm. transition to flight above the atmosphere, and then to transition and fly from exo-atmosphere where there was no air and mm-hmm. the earth's surfaces are not affected, back through and re-enter the atmosphere and then manage energy to landing. And that Those were the real uh, objectives. And some of that, of course, was useful for the shuttle. It very useful for the shuttle. In fact, uh, extremely useful. It was uh, many, much of it was a dir- directly applied to the design concept and the operations uh, g- concept of the space shuttle. And you flew the second ever space shuttle. Uh, yes. In fact, uh, we actually flew uh, uh, the pre-orbital flights, uh, the, the approach and landing, the glide tests uh, at Edwards. Um, I flew two of those flights. And those were designed really to confirm that the flight control systems uh, system gains were correct, um, that the uh, uh, the major subsystems, the electronics, uh, the hydraulics, the computer system would integrate and work correctly in a flight condition. Uh, so we were able to put limited time on all those systems, get confidence that that it would work, and and also that we would really, in fact, be able to land the airplane. Because we could pick, it. we're very selective about weather conditions mm-hmm. and, uh, during with a launch, air launch
0: program like that. But your landing approach for uh, the shuttle, you went manual. Why was that? Um, the landing
1: approach for the space shuttle,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we were encouraged very highly to go ahead and at least demonstrate the automatic landing capability of the mm-hmm. space shuttle. So the, the crew has to be trained to land the shuttle anyway, and each crew is extremely trained, extremely proficient in landing the airplane. I don't think you've seen a bad landing uh, <laughs> on television. Not at so. all. And and uh, the realization uh, after one attempt of of uh, letting the auto land fly the vehicle down to approximately 200 feet, and then the idea was for the pilot to take over. Uh, we learned that without communicating with the airplane. Uh, the fact that the very sophisticated flight control system gives the pilot no feedback at all when the, when the auto land is flying. The thing doesn't move at all. It's just an electronic signal from the strain gauge. The realization became clear that uh, it doesn't make sense to uh, tell the pilot, okay, you're going to land this perhaps, but I'm going to give it to you to an off-nominal, on an off-nominal situation, very the profile. You've got to correct it. Line up with the runway. Uh, it's much better to let him have it at high key let the commander have it and uh, re-communicate with the airplane get the feel of it again and line himself up and fly
0: it down so to this day you remain the only one who's only one who's ever brought the shuttle in manually no every flight is landed manually
1: uh, I, I was the only one to, to have the opportunity to fly it from re-entry all the way through the entry to landing. And that was because we were getting manual flight test data points uh, uh, throughout the profile, the mock profile, all the way down. Joe Engel,
0: thank you very much indeed. You bet your luck. The second short interview is with astronaut Ron Garan. It was recorded at TEDx Salford in January 2012. Colonel Ronald Garan, you were born in 1961, the year of the first human space flight. How old were you when you first decided that that's something you'd like to try?
2: Um, About eight years. uh, About eight years old. uh, Actually, I was seven years old because it was July 20th, 1969, the the year of the moon landing, the date of the moon landing. And I knew on that day that that's what I wanted to do. And even as a little boy, I, I realized watching that that humanity had become a different species that we were no longer confined to our earth and it was something that you know that exploration that that thrill was something that i wanted to be a part of
0: Uh, you were in the air force um when did you apply to nasa and uh, I, i believe you've been in space now twice Yeah, I I became an astronaut in the year 2000,
2: and uh, in 2008 I flew on space shuttle Discovery to the International Space Station, and we brought up and installed the Japanese laboratory. Uh, And then in 2011, I spent basically half of 2011 on board the International Space Station after launching on a Soyuz rocket from that same launch pad as Yuri Gagarin did. Um, um, And like I said, we spent uh,
0: about
2: five and a half months up there.
0: I remember seeing that launch. It actually had the word Gagarin on the side of the, the rocket that took you up there. What What's the uh, mission activity for your second trip? Well, it was mostly scientific research, although we did have the
2: last two shuttle missions uh, come up and dock, and we got to do the uh, last shuttle-based uh, spacewalk. Uh, my spacewalk partner Mike Fossum and I, during the STS-135 mission. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the, the, we've had a continuous human presence on board the International Space Station by, for over 11 years, and most of that time was, uh, we, you know, we were constructing it. Mm-hmm. But even, even though we were constructing it, we still managed to do about 600 uh, different scientific experiments uh, on board. So that's a lot of what we do up there.
0: The International Space Station has been a huge success. But men haven't been back to the moon. How do you feel about about that, about the fact that we've really been restricted to Earth orbit since then?
2: Well, I think we need to reach beyond that, and I think that's uh, what we're trying to do. Uh, one of the things we're doing is trying, at least from the, from, uh, the U.S. government side, is turn the business, if you will, of low-Earth orbit over commercial enterprises, mm-hmm. uh, we've retire the space shuttle so that we could divert uh, those funds towards the development of a heavy lift vehicle that will take us outside of low earth orbit uh, you
0: know hopefully back to the moon onto asteroids uh, and potentially mars two trips up in space how do you think that's changed you and, and your outlook on life not only for personally but life on earth for all of us here
2: well, I think, you know, we get this orbital perspective when we're up there and, and, you know, this view that we're all in it together and we're all interconnected. it connected. And, and really, you know, I came back with a, you know, a very strong uh, feeling that, you know, we need, to, we need to leave the planet a little bit better than we found it. So a big commitment to, to try and make a difference.
0: And what can we do now that, uh, at least for the time being, um, there is... Only the Russian mechanism well the Chinese are also getting out into space, I suppose as well, but for those of us who probably will never travel in space, how can we help
2: well uh, I mean with with space travel or, or
0: just just uh, um, rolling it together for this spaceship earth
2: well the point is you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective and that you know each and every one of us has a responsibility to to make the world a little bit better and to leave it a little bit better than they found it and so um, there's there's 20 million organizations around the world where people can lend a hand so uh, one of the things that we're trying to do right now is to figure out a way for those 20 million organizations to have a collaborative uh, mechanism Mm -hmm. so that they could um, you know pool their resources and and learn from each other's mistakes and and uh, you know different organizations bring unique pieces of the puzzle
0: you can see more about the online community offering a unique orbital perspective of men and women who live and work in space that he has helped to create at fragileoasis.org.